I thought for Valentine's Day I would uh, but, uh, go through the idea, the definition of true love, but uh, actually uh, this is the theme, this is the, I think, the thing that ties chapter 3 of John, but maybe it ties the book of John together, it's def- the definition that John will give of God himself. The first verse here, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Uh, So my first characteristic, true love is a gift. Uh, If you have reasons, this is Slavoj Zizek, uh, if you have reasons why you love someone, you do not love them, and I've changed his statement, you do not love them with agape love. So if uh, you know, uh, Chris says to Maisie, I love you because you have such pearly white teeth. Uh-huh. <laughs> or, uh, you know, if you love someone because they are witty, or uh, that will become permanent. You'll walk around with them. <laughs> um, that we, it, those characteristics are not the reason that we love someone. And in the end, I don't think that we could, in other words, if you quantify love in that manner, and of course we're distinguishing the love that we're talking about in John, agape love, from the typical love that, uh, you know, a kind of romantic love. So here, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. This follows the line of thought in the Gospel of John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, that God loved us first is John's picture. And because he loved us first, then we are, in, we are made capable of loving him in return. The other thing, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. And all of these themes, by the way, that are here in First John, they appear in the Gospel. And I'll just appeal to the Gospel as a kind of commentary uh, on what he's saying in First John. So we could say, true love knows Christ and is known by Christ. Uh, in the Gospel, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so that there is a correlation between love, knowing Christ, and believing. And maybe the word belief here, you know, has the idea, uh, think here of our conversation about faith and faithfulness. You remember how we broke that down? That actually what's being described is not simply that we have faith in Christ, but we have the faithfulness of Christ. And of course that faithfulness, that covenant faithfulness is also descriptive of love. So true love is based on faith and hope, not sight. This I'm, I'm moving along here. 
with the next passage. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So believing, faith, faithfulness are connected to love, and this enables the sight of his glory. So we could say there's, uh, in First John, uh, three claims that he would be readily intelligible to those to whom he first comes. Um, those who continue in sin have not seen God. They didn't recognize Christ, and they do not love. First John three six, and and this is resting you know, on the basis of the incarnation that that uh, they've. Uh, did not recognize him. Believers, though, recognized him. And those who contemplate seeing him, therefore, thereby become pure. This is 3.3. They become pure like he is pure. That is, seeing Christ, you know, think here of Paul's picture of uh, being transformed into his likeness. He says this in both Corinthians and in Romans. So it certainly is a present vision that we can have of God in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans, that we now are being transformed into his likeness. Uh, But also a future transformation. God's children will be fully transformed into his likeness at his coming in 3.2. So there, there's a future fulfillment. Uh, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. So I'm just still the same topic here. Believing and faithfulness are connected to love. Can you have a, you know, think, can you have a faithless love? Uh, someone who is not true to their promises, their covenant promises in marriage. Um you know, uh, ultimately you break that covenant promise and you break the bonds of love. Uh, Of course, what we're in John having to do with is John is combating the false teachers who imagine that they know him and that they, I think that they are very similar to people who uh, would, you know, as in a platonic sense, have a kind of beatific Vision that is that they would have a, some experience in which they would see God, uh, but what John is describing is over and against this, uh, and even even for John, it's not a future seeing when they when they see God, but it's where they see God, and where they see God is in Jesus, who had come in the flesh. You know, this is First John four two, which he's emphasizing. That is, these people would see God and know him outside of the Christ who has come in the flesh. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, those who behold him are being transformed into the same image. Uh, and he's comparing it to Moses. In, uh, as Moses was transformed by beholding God's glory. Uh, so, uh, there is this image of God that and of course it's a metaphorical image we've talked about this right that it's not 
an image that we get through the eyes, but how do we formulate or apprehend the vision of Christ whose image we are being transformed into through the word, through the auditory. So his image is one that is uh, comes to us through the years. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And this is kind of a topic, a, a major topic. Love is obedient. And the nature of this obedience, of course, you know, that in the great commandment in John that, uh, that uh, you know, that you will have love of God and love of neighbor, that you'll love uh, just as Christ is love. And we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so we can say, yes, true love is obedient, but we can go further than this. True love lays down its life for the brother for the brother and sister, for the sheep. And as you know, in John, this is definitive of agape love. Um, you know, in the contemporary Greek setting, uh, was there a distinction between agape and phileo? Uh, maybe not. In John, is there a clear definition given to agape love those of you have had who've had the gospel of john with me can shout out the answer what is definitive of agape love i wasn't in the class with you but i'm going to guess Okay. Yes. Self-sacrifice. Yeah. The 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 laying down. The, Jesus is going to lay down his life, and that's precisely what they're resisting. You know, this is Peter is going to resist this right up into the end, and so as you see the Peter's transformation. You know, actually, even in the gospel, he's he's still arguing with Jesus. The last scene in the gospel. G Peter, do you love me? And Peter will say, well, I phileo you. Uh, maybe not the whole agape thing that you've described, and, but Peter, do you love me? You know, do you? And so he's driving home the lesson, the way that you're going to shepherd these sheep, the way that you're going to feed the sheep is through the willingness to lay down your life for the sheep. So think of the four scenes with Peter in the gospel. The foot washing episode. Certainly, you know, Jesus says that you'll have to be a servant as I'm a servant, but he takes that a step further um, that he that there may already be in the foot washing a kind of pointer to the death of Christ. Uh, Peter's, you know, great confession, and then Peter says, uh, no, you should not, you will not go up to Jerusalem and die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so in this passage, I'm not, I'm not focusing on that in this, what is love? But the counter to what we're doing here is the devil. So when Peter says that, 
you're not going to lay down your life. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And then predicts that Peter would deny him. And then in the next scene, you have uh, Peter cutting off the ear of Malchus, the high priest. And it's almost Peter's demonstration saying, well, look, see, I'm going to lay down my life for you. But of course, again, and we'll come to this, that both in John and in uh, you know the gospel and in the he says not that you're going to kill he says peter put away your sword and in john he says don't be like cain who killed his brother so if you think it, if this self-sacrifice is in any way inclusive of inclusive of violence jesus says that's hatred you got the wrong thing uh and then the, the final scene, you know, where Peter and Jesus, you know, Peter, do you love me? And you've heard sermons on this over the charcoal fire, the three denials and the three questions. And, uh, and what is being driven home here, though, is a kind of, I think, redefinition of the word agape if you didn't know that there was this special love before the gospel and it seems that may be the case after you read john you know that there's this agape love and that's the same thing he's describing here in first john what is the nature of this love it lays down its life uh he laid down his life and so we should lay down our lives so True love imitates Christ in his sacrificial service of others. And this stands over and against a traditional notion of vicarious sacrifice. Why did Christ die? So that we don't have to? No, so that we follow him. He's modeling what we're to do. Uh, Jesus' death on our behalf calls us from one system of sacrifice in which we would be like Cain and sacrifice our brother to a system uh, in which we would sacrifice ourselves. Um, so the, uh, the idea here of agape, that you're to love as I love, uh, you're to, uh, you know, you're to... Uh, Follow me in this love. I've called you friends. That, uh, the, as the Father has love for me, you know, in the uh, final discourse, he's describing an inner Trinitarian love. So one that's very close to this uh, true love imitates Christ's service. Some have said about the gospel, there's no ethic in the Gospel of John. Wait a minute, this is Johannine ethic. And here he's just building on this in 1 John. So what is the Johannine ethic? It's the self-sacrificial love for uh, the other. He washes the feet, he gives his life for his friends. And we're to follow the ethical example of Jesus, uh, that we're to serve God, we're to serve one another. And... Uh, this is something that uh, Jesus says is definitive of the disciples of Jesus. They will know you by your love in uh, John 13. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. 
And Jesus calls them his friends. Uh, No longer do you call me Lord or Master, though it's right that you do so, but now I've called you friends because I've revealed everything to you. Um, And so there is an egalitarianism in the love of Christ. That if, uh, you know, in laying down one's life, uh, that this self-sacrificial discipleship will result in, as I've loved you, so you ought to love one another. It's a mutual uh, love uh, for one another. That love, I'm giving you another quality here, keeps the word. It does the word. 1 John 3.3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Love is through the word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He does what I do. Uh, But also through the word, he understands love. That we can say God's presence is in and through his word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And that is on the basis of Jesus' incarnation, John 14. So uh, I've probably quoted Van Hooser here before that God's being is in communicating and that the purposes of God's communicating is communion or sharing the love the Father has for the Son in the Spirit. So Paul pictures believers as though who are caught up in this communicating activity of the love of God. I would say John does too. As the culmination of the work of the Spirit is that in loving God all things work together for good. And in being loved by him, there is no obstacle which can obstruct them. That is, all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Okay, I'm going to say a harsh thing here, but I'm just following John. I've been, I've been, been pretty positive, right, so far. But uh, fake Christianity is a Christianity that is limited to word speaking and the tongue. Little children, let us not love with simply word or with tongue. There's the fake kind. There's the kind that you do in your head. There's the kind that would make a religion out of Christianity. What is the true kind? John says, we love in deed and truth. We do this thing. Christianity is an adjective, as uh, the article I was quoting today from Pathios puts it. Uh, True Christianity is a verb. Uh, It's something, true love is a verb. The other thing here from John, true love is an abiding love. It's familial, as in the family. It's spousal, as in husband or wife. It's, you know, Paternal, as in fatherly love. First John three one. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. That's the the amazing thing here. We're called His children. 
1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And, you know, the discussion here, well, what is this seed? And I don't know that I have a definitive answer other than to say it's the life force. It's the, you know, the, the power of, of love and life which were often equated in John. And because he has this seed, he cannot sin because he's born of God. And, of course, John is picturing sin here as um, habitual practice. He's not saying, you know, he he will say later, anybody who says they don't sin is a liar. (coughs) But you cannot be a practitioner of sin and be a child of God, uh, is the idea. So throughout... You know, how are you saved? How you how what does that mean that you're saved? Well, for John, we've talked about it, it's an overcoming of dualism, it's an overcoming of dividedness. Uh you know, that think here, you know, that uh of people who in the gospel that Jesus meets that are without, you know, true family, true uh fellowship. But now they are called the one who has the bride. You know, they're called the one who is the child of God. Um, the one in, you know, there's no place more than the gospel that uh, of John or the epistles that repeatedly refers to God as Father. So if alienation is definitive of the sinful life, then the cure for that is love or mutual indwelling and abiding love. Uh, so here is, you know, wholeness. Here is health. Here is uh, the, the transformative healing of love. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The power which gave birth to creation then gives birth to us. And that's the picture in John. It's a kind of recreative process. Um, And by by this, John says in 3.10, the children of God and the children of the devil are of obvious. John has no middle people, right? There's not, oh, it's sort of the children of God, sort of the children of the devil. Either one or the other. You belong to one family or the other. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, that is, anyone who is not practicing love, anyone who's, you know, he's described this, uh, then this person is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. They practice righteousness. Do they do the right thing? Do they love the brother? Or don't they? And you can say, well, this is, the way you identify the family to which this person belongs. Either their father is the, you know, God, or they're a child of the devil, in John's picture. So true love, and this, I'll make a point out of this one here, Sharon. True love is based on egalitarianism and reciprocity. Uh, John says, believers should love one another. Uh, and the idea here is that 
it expresses an egalitarian relationship uh, expecting common uh, reciprocation within a group that no one you know is to be put on a pedestal and loved more and no one is to be loved less love is completely reciprocal we don't love some because they have qualities oh pearly white teeth or boy a beautiful singing voice nor do we refuse to love some because maybe they're mentally handicapped. Maybe they're autistic. Does God love those less? And should we? Do we love people on the basis of you know the way the world loves? We're not to do that. The, the fellowship of the saints, it's a completely reciprocal, egalitarian love. The, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, uh, there are no second-class citizens in the church. And uh, uh, the references to love, then, we have joined this network of the Father, the Son, and the disciples, and there is no distinguishing characteristic uh, in love. The f- Son and the, f- and the Father and the Son loves the believers, uh, the Father loves the Son, and you know we enter into that reciprocal relationship. Now we've already said it here that John, you know, in uh, John, Jesus says that I've called you friends, and then he gives him the great love commandment. So we can say true love is true friendship, right? Uh, can you not develop a friendship? Well, then you, you, in some way, you're holding back. Evan, your devotion tonight is sort of there too. Jesus has revealed everything to us. And in a sense, I think our willingness to reveal ourselves to one another, to let down the facade of, you know, that uh, we're without sin in some way. Uh, John gives us all of these domestic scenes in the gospel uh, that Jesus is seen eating, you know, uh, and we see him in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He calls, he says, our friend Lazarus. Uh, And it's right after chapter 11 where you have this domestic scene that he gives them the new commandment to love one another in chapter 13. Uh, If you do what I command you, then you are my friends. Then you have, you know, uh, entered into the fullness of this relationship. Now, true love, even in laying down its life, puts away the sword. This is in the gospel, but it's also in First John. We just read it. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. If you're willing to slay your brother, you're of the evil one. You're a follower of Cain. Uh, Peter testifies, you know, Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. I'll die for you. But he's of the devil, Jesus says. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's words about, you know, his giving his life He's saying exactly what Jesus said. Are you willing to give me give your life? And Peter says, oh yeah, I will. 
And of course, what Peter has in mind is going down in a blaze of glory with a sword out. And uh, Jesus says, put your sword away. And for all time, I think we are to have put the sword away. We're not to slay other people. That is a contradiction of agape love. You cannot love someone that you're going to kill. You can't, you know, in spite of C.S. Lewis, you know, in spite of pictures that would encourage some form of violence. Uh, you know, throughout the gospel, there, there's the Greek word uper. Laying down your life for the sheep is connected to this uh, idea of agape love. And so Peter misses this uh, in, in the attack on the high priest, but he gets it right later, right? Maybe not until Acts. True love is stronger than death or the orientation to death. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, That it's not just that you slay your brother, but even if you hate them. Or if people are just preoccupied with love, life, romance, sickness. You know, think of here Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman. Uh... So that these people are pictured as living the living dead. Death overshadows life. And one cannot cross from this life to God because people have become, uh, the world has conquered them. And so the death of Christ addresses, you know, this murderous intent that we see in Cain, but it also, I think, addresses the obstacle of hatred, of uh, a life that is given over to self, you know, think of all the things that people do. The Nicodemus, he's into being a success. The Samaritan woman, she's into love, but the wrong kind of love. Uh, the sick man, you know, maybe you sp- spend your whole life uh, pursuing health. But it's all, in a sense, a kind of living death because you're pursuing a life that you presume you do not have. So love and life arise together as themes in John. To love is to live, and to live is to love. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brother. He who does not love abides in death. There it is. You've passed from death into life because you've loved. If you do not love, you abide in death. Uh, <coughs> I think that's <coughs> those wonderful peanuts. Uh, the Valentine peanuts, the love peanuts, <laughs> are stuck in my throat. Uh, They're killing you. <laughs> so uh, I think this is salvation. We're talking salvation here. Uh, if you abide in uh, a life that is without love. You're abiding in death. If you abide in a life, this is it. This is the, the, John would boil it. This is John's ethic. This is John's salvation. Uh, and so true love, thank you, oh, that's true love. is pictured, that's true, yes, there is true love. Mm-hmm. 
true love is pictured throughout John but as resting in Christ as abiding in Christ. So here he says, he who loved does not love abides in death. And the opposite to this, in uh, verse 24 of this chapter, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. And he, big, you know, capital H, he, Jesus, in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. What is his commandment? He says, he who keeps his commandment. We know his commandment, right? To love the brothers, to lay down your life for the other. That is the, the commandment. Um, so we could describe this abiding you know, in the gospel in many ways. That uh, With the Samaritan woman, that it's sharing one cup they're going to drink from, you know, that the Samaritan and the Jew will drink from one cup. Uh, think here of the John resting on the bosom of Jesus as they eat. Uh, and he says that we are the, he's the only begotten in the bosom of the Father that he describes that relationship that he had as the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Uh, And so throughout the gospel, there's this vision of a final togetherness of uh, a, uh, you know, the picture of the, the one that John identifies himself, the one that Jesus loved. So we can say true love is pictured as resting in Christ, as abiding in Christ. Uh, And this is really what we're about. This is what we want more than anything else. This is the fulfillment of, you know, human desire, uh, is to love. Uh, This is uh, uh, what bathes the meaning of our lives, or our lives in meaning. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. We could go on uh, and talk about that this abiding in Christ uh, is then the picture of the family of God, you know, the picture of the temple of God, uh, the picture of the, the many-roomed mansion in which everyone is welcome. All right, that's my introduction to chapter three. <laughs> can we read it? Okay, uh, Sharon, you want? Can you see enough to read? Yes. Give us a couple of verses. Okay. Sorry, I went to the gospel. I'm just going. Those pages are so slippery. <laughs> the first one. Mm-hmm. See how a great love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. He says that we would be called this, and this is what we are. Such we are. This is the reality. Uh, And this reality is a reality that the world, we can't expect, would recognize. And so... uh, Uh, Evan, you want to do the next two verses there? 
Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. I was going to do a silly, silly thing here, and I didn't want to ruin it. And say love waits, um, and but the the idea here is that there is an element of purity that he pure that we are made pure through the hope that is fixed on him. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You want to purify yourself, then fix your hope on him, and of course this is the same. Uh, kind of juxtaposition that we find between Romans 7 and 8. You want impurity? Go with Romans... No, you don't want impurity. Go, you go with Romans 7 that give yourself over to covetousness and to, uh, you know, desire. And what is the resolution to desire? It's to fix your hope on him. Paul thematically, you know, lays this out as hope. Hope is uh, the theme of chapter 8. And so too, John uh, is, I think, juxtaposing uh, hope and uh, desire. So desire would land us in in impurity, and hope lands us in purity. And of course, the idea is that with this in Romans, and I think it's here in John too, seeing him is the shift then to... Uh, in fact, being willing to wait for his appearing. Uh, and meanwhile, we're dependent upon hearing. And then, Michael, you want to do the next two? Which verses would that be? Everyone who practices. Four, oh, three and four? Okay. Uh, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Every person who practices sin commits an act of rebellion, and sin is rebellion. Uh, rebellion, I think, is a good translation. Uh, you know, this is Soren Kierkegaard. He says, your problem is not ignorance. You know, thinking here of our apologetics class. You know, do I need to convince you that God exists? Well, I could inv- uh, give you some intellectual arguments, but Kierkegaard says, that's not your problem. Your problem is that you're in rebellion. And John 2 then describes, he defines sin as the practice of lawlessness, uh, of rebellion. And then Jake, you want to do that? Did you already do it? Go, Jake. You want to do the next one? You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Uh... He appeared to give us propitiation for an angry God so that God, God's wrath... No, that's not what John says. He appeared to take sin away, to remove it from our lives. Uh, and he's going to equate this with righteousness and not practicing lawlessness. And that's what he says next. Dave, you want to read there? No one who abides in him sins. 
No one whose sins has seen him or knows him. What do you think that means here, anybody? That no one whose sins has seen him or knows him. You know, in the CEB it says that every person who remains in relationship to him does not sin. Any person who sins has not seen him or known him. So I thought that was a very peculiar way of translating this. And I I think we know, I, I don't think he's doing a Calvinist thing here. And saying, oh, you thought you were saved, but you're not. But he's saying that the one who habitually sins is blind to who Christ is. Right? That, can we put it this way, not recognizing Jesus is a moral failure. Right? Uh, Being ignorant is something for which you are culpable when it comes to Christ. You say, oh, I didn't know him. Yeah, that's your problem. You didn't know him. Why didn't you know him? And of course, we all feel this a little bit, that when we are beginning to sin or even practice sin, I think the plausibility of Christianity becomes less and less. Is that too strong? That, uh, you know, that the more you enter into this habitual practice, the more unlikely this whole thing seems. Because we're removing ourselves from the reality that we knew. And so there is in John this, you know, this whole thing of an ethic that is fused with a knowing. And that's why people read John and they say, oh, look, there's no ethic, because what they're used, they're used to is the separation of, you know, ethics and, and doctrine. And, you know. Well, John just fuses it all together and says, no, your, your practices are your doctrine. Your belief is your ethic. What you do is your Christianity. <laughs> And a Christianity that does not do, but is only in word, is of the Antichrist. Let's move on. I don't want to get too dark. Chris, you want to read the next one? Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To be a sacrifice for the anger of God. No, he came to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Hatred, unrighteousness, lawlessness, sin. He came to do away with the works of the devil. This is a pure Christus victor. Um, that, uh, on the other hand, and, and notice he, he pictures the, the one who would be deceived as the one who imagines that he can be righteous but not practice righteousness. The one who imagines that he can sin and still be a good Christian. 
I, I think that's what John's saying, right? These, that's what the Gnostics are saying, but we have a whole branch of Christianity that has made a religion of this thing in which you can go through the formal procedures of being saved and not in reality be a doer of the word. That is, your ethic is removed from what you do in your head, and that's what John is saying is of the devil. All right, and then, uh, Maisie, you want to read the next two there? No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And I'm assuming here that the picture, you know, I've said this, that we are the progeny of God. And what marks us as the children of God is the life force of love, uh, you know, that is marked, you know, that anyone who uh, loves is known of God. And this is the way that they will know you, is by your love. If you don't have it, you ain't got it. Are you saved? Well, you a mean SOB? Well, you're probably not. <laughs> that was too much. Okay. All right. Well, I, you know, by this the children of the devil are obvious. They don't practice righteousness. They're not of God. They don't love their brother. All right. And oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, so. <laughs> okay, Kelsey will give you the privilege of the final two verses. Okay. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning: that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil, or was of the evil one. That we read it and murmured, murdered his brother. <laughs> Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteousness. Uh, you know, the this is the first murder that we have recorded. Why can't he kill evil? Can't, can't kill Abel. Because he was jealous, I guess, because his brother was righteous and he wasn't. And he wanted to obtain his righteousness and so he killed him. Uh, that's of the devil. And that's a marker, then, of the deceived, is, you know, that clearly they're still practicing Genesis 3-4 uh, by the time we get to Cain and Abel. Uh, I don't believe there's a Christianity that burns heretics at stakes and at the stake or excludes and uh, kills and does violence. I, I, I've just come to the conclusion that's not Christianity. Uh, I don't know what religion it is, but it's certainly not the religion of the Gospel of John. I guess we could rip that part out, but then you got the rest of the New Testament too. So I understand that uh, there is a violent Christianity with a violent atonement that's exclusive of the other, and that would, you know, in some way uh, oppress and create a hierarchy of oppression but what we get in chapter 3 I think is a, a, 
a picture of here's the true faith and here's the false faith. And John's trying to save the church from the Antichrist. There's not some horned beast, you know, that's outside the church. The problem is, he's in the church. They're in the church. Any comments, questions?